Welcome to Tauri's Community Church. We hope this talk helps you in figuring it out because we believe that when people discover truth and love, they are able to face life in a different kind of way and come alive. If this talk is relevant for you and you wish to discover more, please head over to tauraisecommunitychurch.com.au forward slash services. And with that, we hope you enjoy today's talk. He um, had created a wall and um, it made it very difficult for women to experience equality and to be able to express the freedom of their gifts. Um, so we had a little chat about that last week. We're kind of going to be building on that again this week, but using a different story. But the kingdom of God has a face and a name. And the face and the name is Jesus. And so when we look at what his kingdom looks like, when we're kind of wanting to know what God's world might look like, we have to look at the face of Jesus. We have to look at his actions, his values, his belief systems, what he actually stood for. And in this world, sometimes we can look at the world that we live in and we kind of go, oh, where are you, God? And the fact of the matter is God isn't in a lot of spaces, if, if you understand what I'm saying. It, some of the things that are happening on planet Earth don't actually reflect the name or the face of Jesus. And beliefs are funny things. Jesus sort of made this interesting statement when he said, the truth shall set you free. And in our world, truth is often the first thing that uh, kind of is discarded. Those that are in power have a monopoly on the truth. So the winner's, the winner's truth is heard and the loser's voice is not heard. And what happens is that those who have the dominant power structures, they, ab they kind of make truth um, absolute in such a way that it's very hard for other voices to be heard or for other experiences to be heard. And so sometimes we think that what we're living in is Jesus' truth, but the thing is if people are in feeling entrapped, captive, um, loaded, burdened down, it means that they're not free. So it means that somewhere there are belief systems, there are value systems which are holding us in captivity. And Jesus came to set us free. So I want us to, I'll give you a little example. In the 1600s, um, King James asked for the Bible to be translated into English. And it created a conundrum for the translators because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it talked about, Paul talks about slave traders being abhorrent to God, you know, that what they were practicing, the actions that they were doing was not part of God's world. But for the translators, it was really hard because the noblemen of the day were actually involved in the slave trade. And King James himself was probably, if not involved in the slave trade, he was certainly profiteering from the slave trade. And so the translators are kind of going, am I going to be brave enough to translate this word accurately into English or are we not? Are we going to substitute it? And whether it was because of fear, whether it was from pressure from the noblemen, whether it was pressure from the king, the way they translated that one little word in Timothy, they translated it to mean men stealers and kidnappers. And if you look in some of your translations, it's still there today. 
Now, the ramification of that one little word not being translated meant that for centuries, millions of Christians have abhorred kidnapping while sanctioning and standing by the worst kind of kidnapping that can ever happen, which is called slave trade. It actually meant that if, if they translated that word accurately, abolitionists like William Wilberforce would have arisen two centuries earlier and fought against the slave trade. It meant that the American colonies might have been colonised without the slave trade. It would have meant maybe that 600,000 men who died in the Civil War fighting for the rights of the slave trade to be abolished in the US may not have had to have died. It may have meant that the thousands and thousands of black people who have been persecuted in the US, who have lost their lives in the US because of the slave trade and its legacy that it leaves, may not have happened. It may have meant that apartheid in South Africa may not have had grabbed a root the way it did. So can you see how we can twist, we can through fear or pressure or oppression, we can twist truth and all of a sudden, instead of truth setting us free, because when we step into God's kingdom, his kingdom sets us free. And so what we think and what we believe is really, really, really important, not just for ourselves, but for the generations and for those around us. Today, let's have a little look at a story about a woman, if I can just have that up there. A woman who had suffered a condition of hemorrhaging for 12 years, a long succession of physicians had treated her and treated her badly, taking all her money and leaving her worse off than before, had heard about Jesus. She slipped in from behind him and touched his robe. She was thinking to herself, if I can put a finger on his robe, I can get well. And the moment she did it, the flow of blood dried up. She could feel the change and knew her plague was over and done with. At the same moment, Jesus felt energy discharging from him and he turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said, what are you talking about? With this crowd pushing and jostling you, you're asking, who touched me? Dozens have touched you. But he went on asking, looking around to see who had done it. The woman, knowing what had happened, knowing she was the one, stepped up in fear and trembling, knelt before him and gave him the whole story. And Jesus said to her daughter, you took a risk of faith and now you're healed and whole. Live well, live blessed, be healed of your plague. I love this story. This woman, some of you know what it's like to experience long-term illness and you know how draining it is. Can you imagine hemorrhaging all the time? How exhausting every uh, minute that you woke up with, every day that you woke up with, you would just have this energy that's just sapped out of you before the day's even begun. But not only that, in this, in this woman's world, her um, medical condition meant that she was isolated. She was entrapped. It probably meant that she couldn't eat with family. It probably meant she couldn't go to the marketplace because she was unclean. She couldn't go to uh, temples, places of worship. She couldn't go to gatherings because she was unclean. So she was isolated. Now, we've all experienced a little bit of what isolation is like, but can you imagine isolation for 12 years? 
12 years. Can you imagine what that would do to her self-esteem, her sense of self-worth, her, her dignity to be, to be titled unclean? Unclean. The closest modern-day version I can think of is our AIDS patients. Unclean. Don't touch them. And then on top of that, people thought that it was okay to abuse her in her situation, to take advantage of her. And so she's totally impoverished. So now she's trapped by poverty, she's trapped by belief, and she's trapped by disease. I reckon that's a tough gig, hey? But you know what? In our culture today, we are hemorrhaging from this thing called inequity and inequality. We are bleeding. <laughs> And it's not just, it's a disease that's on the inside of us and it's also, there's cultural beliefs and it's impoverishing our lives. Our lives aren't rich like they, they should be. And what it's doing is it's leading people to feeling entrapped. And not just women, but men too. We're all entrapped by this thing called inequality and inequity. Let me give you some examples there's a beautiful woman in this room who was suffering from the disease of um, addiction and she, while she was um, experiencing addiction, she committed some crimes and the judge ordered her to um, a rehab program for 12 weeks and also then said that she had to do community services. So she rocks up for the 10-week um, program on rehab and she finds she's the only female in a group of 16 men. And over the next five weeks, she experienced constant sexual harassment from the men. She experienced uh, pornographic material being sent to her. She experienced um, men asking if uh, they could utilise her body for favours. And she experienced um, the offering of drugs. So here she is in a government-run program, supposedly set up for her well-being, her wholeness and her wellness, and she's experiencing um, sexual harassment. Anyway, we went and we visited the supervisor, and the supervisor said, OK, well, if you can't do the program, then you need to increase your community service hours, otherwise you'll be in violation of the judge's order. So... We went, okay, well, we'll do the community services. In the meantime, I did my rant to the Minister of Corrections. And um, anyway, she starts thinking she's going to be able to do her community services. And then all of a sudden, she finds week after week's going by, and she can't fulfil her obligations because they can't provide a safe environment for her to work out her community services. And then they come and they sort of say, if you don't start doing community services, you're going to have to go back before the judge and the, you may end up in jail. So here we have a woman. She's not resistant to the change. She's not resistant to the program. She's not resistant to doing her time. She's not resistant to any of that. But she can't get access to it that's equal and safe and that's in her best interest. And this is something our government are running it's inequity. The men, the men can do their rehab program. They can tick off, yep, doing my rehab program, following the court orders, doing my community service program over here, ticking it all off. And this woman can't access the same fair treatment in our legal system. How do you think that that makes her feel? 
How do you think it makes her feel? Because she's left with this choice. Do I choose sexual harassment and endure community services, enduring the sexual harassment, or do I stand before a judge and say I violated the court order and maybe face having to go to jail? That was her choice, a young Christian girl who'd been promised in Jesus that Jesus would set you free, and here she is having to endure something which I find incomprehensible, that it's happening in the year 2000. But that's what it's like, and it, and it leaves people entrapped and kind of going, what choice do I have? She chose in the end to do two weeks of community services, get it over and done with, so that she could move on. But I kind of go, no woman, no woman should have to face that. And no government, no government should be implementing programs like that that aren't in the best interests of our people. John Griffiths and Michael, um, my son, challenged me on my own contribution to inequity and inequality. So... For a long time, I believed that if we had separate ministries and separate groups and separate programs, you know, specifically designed for women, that I could empower women and kind of see them liberated. And then one day, John comes to me and he says, Sharon, I really want to come to the girls' night in. I just feel, you know, I feel like you girls are getting all this good stuff and I'm missing out. So he's here kind of saying, I feel entrapped. I feel like you guys got all this blessing happening over here and I'm just stuck here in boring old man world. <laughs> I want something more. So that got me thinking. Probably internally I went, well, go and create your own thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, I had to think. And then my son, Mikey, Katie, is passionate about the sex slave industry and so she was helping create um, a beautiful event which raised awareness and funds for the sex slave industry. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm saying as a criticism of the event. What I'm saying is, is that the event triggered in me a revelation. So do you understand the difference? So anyway, what happened was that... So Katie's creating this event, but it was an all-girls-only event. So Mikey came along and he did the sound and he did the lighting and he did a whole heap of pack up and set down and, you know, all those physical things. And in a way, he kind of took on um, a female role. You know, for decades, women have been doing that for men. You know, we, we kind of make the man's world work. You know, their vision happen all behind the scene. No one kind of sees it. You know, we, we bring the morning tea or, you know, the lunch or whatever it is, make their dream happen. And in, in this sense, it was a role reversal and Mikey didn't mind that, he didn't mind serving, he didn't do that, but he was so passionate about this, this cause, he kind of went, I feel hemmed in, I feel captive, I feel trapped. He says, I want to come alongside my wife and partner and lend my power and lend my voice and lend my gifts and lend my money. I want to stand side by side with her and say, it's not good enough that women are treated this way. I want to do that. And I feel restricted and I feel caged in and I feel entrapped. And so I got to thinking, I'm kind of thinking, by creating women's ministries and women's groups, are we actually creating more distance between the genders? And yes, we're different, but in our difference, are we creating this separation that doesn't have to be there? And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, if the story of victimisation is only ever spoken to the same crowd over and over again, how does it change? How does the world change? 
If men don't hear, for example, how they impact on us, how can they change? We're not even giving them the option. What we're doing, in a sense, is talking about them negatively behind their back. So if we run a, say, a women's small group, and we um, have women, they come and they talk about their marriages and they talk about their frustrations with their husband. Yes, it does happen. And, um, and it feels so good. And anyway, they come and talk about that. But then they have to go home and nothing's changed in the home because the husband hasn't heard how they're impacting on the female. So the female feels a freedom to discuss her stuff with other women, but she can't actually discuss it with the person who can actually create the change in the, in the world. And it's not that he... It's that partnership of hearing, that synergy of hearing one another that creates the change. And so this has embarked me on this journey where I'm looking at uh, programs that are happening in Rwanda and South Africa where you've got this synergy of people who are almost at polar ends of things and they're talking to one another and as a result, change is happening. Did you know in Rwanda, Rwanda has more females in government than any other nation on the planet. They have an amazing forgiveness and reconciliation program where, and tomorrow night if you watch um, the story, you're going to hear about this beautiful woman who lost an arm, who lost her children, lost her baby, lost all her relatives in the Rwandan genocide. And the man who murdered her family, they are now friends. They've been reconciled and he helps her in her day-to-day living. Amazing, isn't it? The first time she met him, the first time she heard his story, she um, collapsed, was unconscious, placed into hospital. It took many, many months for them to hear the story of how he had impacted on her and what her life was like as a result of his actions. But then she also had to hear how his, his violence had impacted his soul and how he was entrapped by the violence that he'd done. But instead of staying in the past and in this state of separateness, they had come together and now they're creating this beautiful partnership together of reconciliation and forgiveness. I reckon our prison systems could do with a bit of that, don't you reckon? I reckon our churches could do with a bit of that. I reckon our marriages could do with a little bit of that, don't you reckon? But can you see how subtle this inequity thing can be, this disease and how it causes us to hemorrhage? A couple of uh, years ago, I'd written a whole heap of stuff on soul-keeping and um, this denomination rang one night and they sort of said to Tim, hey, look, we just love the stuff that Sharon's been producing on soul-keeping. We want to present it at our denomination's retreat. And Tim says, great. He says, I'll give you um, her phone number and her email. All of a sudden, there was this pause on the, on the line and the person sort of said, well, that's not going to be possible. She's not going to be able to deliver the material because she's a woman. The best that I can maybe arrange is for you to be present whilst she delivers the material. Can you imagine what that feels like? That's not the first time. I reckon I experienced that on an annual occurrence from someone somewhere. But what it does is it feels like this slap in the face. It feels like this punch in the gut. It feels like, here we go again. I do all the groundwork for Tim. Um, Tim gets all the research, all the stuff that I've thought through, all that kind of stuff. He gets to deliver it, and then he gets paid for it. And I'm the one that's done the work. You know, the unfairness of it. But why? Why did that happen? 
It happened because of seven verses in the New Testament, in Corinthians and in Timothy, that talk about women um, not teaching and um, that, that kind of thing. And um, some of you asked if I would unpack those verses this morning, and I was going to, and I got about three pages into it, and I went, I'm fed up with this. I'm fed up with justifying on the basis of seven verses. Because you see, there are 7,950 verses that are contrary to those seven verses. And we never focus on the 7,950 verses that present a theology, a belief system that actually empowers everyone, regardless of race, sex, or creed. Do you know what I mean? Like, in God's eyes, we're all set free. In, in the Holy Spirit, he gives the gifts liberally to both male and female. And so it's seven verses, and I can explain those seven verses to you. I can show you the con cultural context. But you know what? I'm fed up. After 25 years, I am just so fed up of having to justify my position whilst other people have created a belief system and a structure which has persecuted women, which has stopped women. But even more than that, it has persecuted the Holy Spirit and has stopped the Holy Spirit from having the freedom that the Holy Spirit actually wants to create the church, to create the body, to create love on planet Earth the way the Holy Spirit wants to. And I kind of go... You know what, you guys, you flip it around. You do some work. You justify the rest of the New Testament to me. And then if you can come up, can still hold your theology on the basis of the 7,950 other verses, then I'll listen to you. But if you're going to hold to that traditional viewpoint, you're going to have trouble with the story of Mary and Martha. You're going to have trouble with where Paul brings Priscilla into Ephesus to be a co-teacher. You're going to have problems with Romans and Corinthians where women were working alongside of men and then he tells the church to submit to the women as much as the men. You're going to have problems with why Jesus, when he rose from the dead, why did he appear to women before men? You're going to have problems with Martha who identified Jesus as the Son of God first and foremost. Why did a woman see that, not a man? Why did Jesus take women teaching with him? Why did he create disciples, you're going to have problems with so much. You're going to have problems with that amazing passage where um, Paul says, in Christ there is no separation, there is no male and female, indicating that God is above gender. He is bigger than gender. So you're going to have problems with that, but you do the work. You do the work, because your persecution, if you hold that traditional line, your persecution has done enough damage to the bride of Christ, and at the moment, this world needs both men and women partnering together, creating beauty and love on the planet, because what's missing at the moment isn't power, it is love. And that's what we need to create together. We need to create it in beauty. So the church is entrapped the church can't break free. It can't be its beautiful vision of itself because of belief. And then we come to marriages. And that traditional viewpoint of the man being the head has created so much damage, so much pain. And I can go in and I can explain that cultural context of that if that's what you want me to be. But as a marriage celebrant, I've married over 400 people and I have to grapple with what marriage is all about. 
And for me, marriage is supposed to reflect the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the way they communicate with one another, the synergy, the beauty and the love that they have for each other. And marriage is supposed to reflect that. And when we watch how the Holy Spirit work, there's respect, there's consideration, there's roles, but they work together in this flow, in this harmony, and at the end of the day, they are about love. No one part of the Trinity is in charge. No one part of the Trinity is the top dog. No one part of the Trinity is operating from a position, from positional power. They're operating from a power which is giving away power because they have this concept that power is infinite. It's not finite. There's, there's not just this amount of power and one person has to execute that power. And that's what our marriages are supposed to look like. Did you know they've just done some studies and they've found that of all religious groups, of all people with faith, born-again Christians and practicing Jews have the highest rate of divorce. Agnostics and atheists have the lowest rate of divorce. And they think that the reason for that is, is that when agnostics and atheists come into a marriage, it's about mutuality. It's about they're both responsible for making the marriage work, so they both have to work at the communication. They both have to work at the conflict. They both have to work at hearing. And they're not trying to force one another into roles. Whereas in born-again Christian homes and practicing Jewish homes, what they're finding is there's this tension that's constantly happening where one isn't performing the role properly. So he might not be leading, she might not be submitting well. Um, conflict around communication because it's all about power and roles. And the issue isn't about who's in charge. The issue in a marriage is always about love. That's, that's the tricky part of marriage. But again, so many marriages are, are entrapped because of this kind of thinking that we have. And it's so subtle. It's so ingrained. Last year, I was so fed up with gender inequity. And I remember talking to some girlfriends about it, both here and on the mainland. And one of them sort of said, Sharon, there's no way that you can follow your dream and Tim have his dream. Somebody has to compromise and someone has to surrender their gift and their dreams. And unfortunately, that has to be you. You both can't do it. You both can't follow your dream. And I understood practically what they were saying. But you know what? Another part of me went, well, that sucks. And I don't know that I'm happy about that. I just don't know. Because if I look at the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit don't do that to one another. They don't say, the Father doesn't say, oh, well, you know, because I want to be top dog. You're, and, you know, my vision, Jesus, is more important than your vision. So, you know what? You're just going to have to surrender your vision. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. They've kind of worked it out together in this relationship, in this synergy, in this oneness, in this communication. And I kind of go, isn't that how we're supposed to be? Unified, loving, kind, patient, persevering, gentle, self-controlled. I don't read anywhere in the New Testament where it says everything should be about the bloke. Sorry, Tim. Sorry, Tim. 
But I kind of go, we're living in trap because of beliefs. As a younger generation, you can kind of go, well, we've made so many advances, you know, this, this gender inequality, this gender inequity, it doesn't really apply to us, you know, we've sort of seen the light. Can I just say that that's a fallacy and it's a lie because this gender inequality and inequity pops up, it's a disease. And until Jesus comes again, it's going to pop up and it's going to pop up and it's going to look different in each generation. I've had to fight to be, on, to be able to do this. I've had to fight. Your generation have access, the 20-year-olds have access to a platform but you're being muzzled in what you have to say in a way I have never been muzzled. You see, you're being muzzled because for you to have a platform and for you to have a say, and you have more than this platform, you have the internet, you have social media, but you're being muzzled because you have to curate a sexual image. I have never seen a generation so sexualized as the 20-year-olds. And you can say whatever you like on your platform, so long as it's sexy, so long as it fits in that paradigm of sex image. And I watch 20-year-olds curate their image. And you know what? Sometimes when I look at the social media feeds and I see it from the 20-year-olds, you can complain, you can shame, you can not go deep in what you have to say, you can be superficial. And your platform can go like that, be big and expansive. You can get sponsorship from companies, and it all depends on the image that you put up there. And as long as your image is sexy, you're fine. You're going to have a platform. doesn't matter what you say. I kind of go, that's muzzling. A few years ago, I said to a young 20-year-old, I think that my message would be better received if I was prettier, if I had long hair and it was blonde. And he said, yeah, you don't have the looks for communication. In actual fact, you're not sexy enough and also you're not photogenic enough to be a good communicator. Now, we go horror, horror, horror when we hear that, but I watch it unfold every single day on social media where the 20-year-olds, especially the girls, I don't see this effort going from the blokes in terms of what they're, the content of what they're putting on social media. They're still just saying what they want to say, so the same level of, you know, criteria for men and women is different, but I watch girls curating their image, making sure that what they put on there is going to be seen and have a platform, and it all fits in with sexy. Now, do you want to know what the sexualization of women is all about? <laughs> what does it feed? Who's feeding it? The third biggest industry in the world is pornography. $98 billion it makes a year, and it's increasing. It's all about the sexualization of women. Do you know that a woman in the porn industry can get paid $1,000 an hour and a guy will get paid $100 an hour? What does that tell you about the sexualization of women? What does, the, what does the porn industry feed? The porn industry feeds sexual appetite. So it's just like a drug. You know, you take it once and it increases the appetite for more drugs. The porn industry does that. Do you know what the porn industry is feeding? It is feeding the fastest crime in the world, which is sexual slavery. 
We say that prostitution is the oldest trade in the game. It's actually the oldest depression of women. Sexualization is the oldest depression against women. Prostitution is so linked to the oppression of women. And your sexualization, every time you are sexualizing and you're playing that game, you are buying into this billion dollar industry. And you think that there's no relevance, just like people have said to us for relevance, what does it really matter if there's a few verses that stop women from speaking and leading and utilizing gifts? There's no impact. It doesn't really matter. I don't know how many times I've heard that. It doesn't really matter if so-and-so has a little view like that. There's no impact. There's a huge impact that happens across the planet. There's a huge impact that happens on the soul. In this state, in 2012, I think it was, don't quote me on that, there was a 12-year-old girl in foster care who was abused by, or who was used by men, prostituted to men, over 100 different men, maybe 150, somewhere around there. We called it prostitution. And prostitution gets to happen because we think it's perfectly normal for a man to pay for a woman's body for sex. It's just a value in our culture that it's perfectly okay for that to happen. It's just normal. But this girl wasn't prostituted. This girl was enslaved. She's no different to girls in India who I have met who are enslaved there. She had to perform sex at the age of 12 for food, for shelter, for clothing. That's slavery. Do you know, not one of those men, not one of those men who utilised her have ever been criminally charged. If we had the laws at Sweden, because Sweden understand the links between sexualization, prostitution, and the sex slave industry, if we had those laws that they have, where they're focusing not on the prostitute but on the user, we would have had between 100 and 150 men charged and they would be imprisoned. And a loud message would have been sent out in our country and in our state and to children and to women that you are valuable and you are of worth and you are of dignity. And this cannot happen. But instead, it's still happening. I met with one of the girls who are the highest risk in this state a few weeks ago. Oh, the sexual slavery that that girl is living with, my heart just breaks. And you know what? She grew up in the church. She can't see any difference between the church and the world. Because she was mistreated in the church as well as in the world. So we can kind of say, you know, the sexualization, it doesn't matter. It does matter. Your voice matters. If, you're going to, if we're going to have a platform, then let's have a platform that's, that speaks goodness, that speaks of Jesus stuff. Let's not compromise and let's not give in to this sexualization that's happening. You are worth more than that. And our communities are worth so much more than that. Do you know that they can fill the MCG eight times over with the number of children that are currently sexually assaulted in this nation? 
eight times over, full. That's not just the seating that's on the, on the middle of the ground as well as everywhere. Why is that allowed to happen? Because of a big billion dollar industry that wants to entrap and enslave. So if you, your generation, think that you're more liberated than my generation, I kind of go, no, you've got a bigger battle than what I've had. Because you may have platforms, but your voice is being muzzled in a way that my voice hasn't been muzzled. So where's the hope in all this? That's why I love this story. It's because this woman kind of thought, here she is entrapped, and she kind of goes, there has to be something different. And she hears about Jesus, and she kind of goes, I wonder, I wonder, if I just... If I just step out and I touch his robe, could I be healed? And I kind of go, if I just step outside of what my culture is telling me and I actually look at who Jesus is and I just touch his presence and get close to what he values and believes and who he is, can I change and can others change? She touches his robe. She touches his presence and she's healed. He confronts her powerlessness. You see, this stuff, we can feel powerless. We can feel like as a man we can feel powerless, like they're always going on about this stuff. I don't know how to change. And as women, we can feel totally powerless. We can kind of go, I have told them so many times. I've told my husband over and over and over again. But he's not listening. He's not hearing. On a big scale, it can be I've gone to um, social services so many times to the correction. I've explained to them how their systems are hurting people. I've explained it over and over and over again. I'm, I'm talking about pornography all the time. Nothing's changing. This, this terrible disease is just increasing. I feel so powerless. But there's something about when we step out from that and we see the presence of Jesus and we kind of go, I need your power. I need the mystery of what happens when I touch your robe. I need the mystery of what happens when I draw close to your kingdom. I need the mystery of what happens when I draw close to your face and to your values and to your beliefs and to your being. I need the mystery of that because in that, I don't understand how it works. All what I know is, is that there's this transaction that happens and then all of a sudden, I go from being powerless to powerful. This woman became empowered. She, she was free of the disease. That meant she had life. That meant she could go and start her life all over again, all new. And that's the opportunity Jesus offers us every single day if we go into this rhythm with him, this powerful rhythm of doing life with Jesus. But it doesn't stop there because Jesus actually said to her, he asks, who touched me? Who touched me? And you know, the disciples are kind of going, well, everybody's touched you. How can you kind of, you know, what's the big deal? You see, by asking her to own up, what he's asking her is to give voice to the change that's happened in her. He's asking her to say what her life was like and what it's like now. He's asking her to confront the values of the day which said she was an unclean woman, an untouchable. You don't touch that kind of woman. 
You leave them alone. You separate them. You isolate them. But in, her, in Jesus saying, speak up, woman, she gets to share the fact that she wasn't untouchable to God. The rest of the society might have seen her in a certain way. The rest of the society might have wanted to treat her a certain way. But she's going, this is what Jesus did for me. I'm changed. I'm different. He loved me enough to touch me, to embrace me, to, to release me, to empower me. And there's something that happens when we start to speak about the goodness of what God has done for us. When we can speak and lend voice, this is where I was, this is where I am. And then the final thing he does is he calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. And when he does that, what he's doing is he's, he's positioning her and placing her in his family, in his community, in his kingdom. And he's saying this is what it looks like. This is what freedom looks like. She's no longer captive. This is what my kingdom looks like. You're a daughter in my kingdom. Welcome. The rest of the world might treat you like that. But in my kingdom, you're my daughter. What a beautiful word to give to a woman who'd been isolated from community and family for 12 years. Daughter. 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 So I don't know anything but Jesus who can change this little problem that we have. I don't know any, any other being that's powerful enough but it does require us to come close to him, to come into his presence, to touch his robes. It does require us to lend voice. And it does require us to accept that we are a child. That we have a place in his community. So what do I want you to say yes to? I suppose more than anything is I want you to say yes to drawing closer to Jesus and kind of going... Do all my beliefs set me free? Do all the beliefs that I have, do they really reflect who Jesus is? Could, if I just moved a little bit, what could be released? What could be empowered? What, what part of Jesus' face, values, could be communicated so much more clearly? If I just drew a little closer to him and a little further away from my culture? Will I say yes to coming into the presence of God? Will I say yes to praying? Will I say yes to thinking? Will I say yes to reading his word? Will I say yes to reflection? Will I say yes to listening to other parts of the body, to other people in the body, and try to understand what that experience might be like. Will I draw closer to the presence of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. I thank you for who you are. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the way in which you model constantly unity and oneness and partnership, respect, kindness, love. 
And Father, I know that there could be couples here, men and women, who are older like me, who just have this sense of grief, a sense of loss. If we'd only could, could have seen Scripture through your eyes rather than through the interpretation of our culture, maybe our lives could have looked a little bit differently. We really hope you enjoyed this talk. We've created a free resource for this series, which is available for you over at tauraisecommunitychurch.com.au forward slash services. You'll find links in the description. We are praying for you. Have a great week.